Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get going on Ruth chapter 2. Um, this is uh, uh, a continuation in our series on Ruth. Last week we talked about Ruth 1, which I'll summarize here in just a second. But here's, here's, here's what I want you to kind of click into. Here's the... Here's where we're going today. I think for many professing Christians, a a sort of gap exists between what we know we should believe in the scriptures and what we actually experience of God in our everyday lives. And so so what I mean by that is there's this, you know, there's these beautiful, miraculous stories of God's providence and power that we read of in the scriptures. For example, like say, you you know, the, the Exodus and the crossing of God's people through the Red Sea and how, how we read about those things. And we read in the New Testament about these, these miracles that Jesus performed that were very immediate and obvious. You know, there's, 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 there's a meal for 5,000 people out of just, you know, uh, a few loaves of bread and some fish. And, and there's people that are actually being resurrected from the dead. And, and in one sense, I think we obviously believe that because the scriptures tell us we should believe that. But, but I think for most of us, if not the majority of us, in fact, maybe all of us, that's not the way God actually works in our everyday lives, right? I mean, we, we don't necessarily experience obvious, miraculous signs and wonders and movements of God that we can point to and say, oh, that was obviously God. And so what happens is there's this sort of uh, almost like a gap that creates a sort of tension in us between what we see, how God acts in the scriptures, and then what we experience actually in our everyday lives. And if we're not careful, this sort of gap can create a sort of hollowness and a mere sort of confessional Christianity rather than a robust and faithful trust in God. The only analogy I have for you is... is, um, is my, my alma mater, uh, Army, the, the uh, Black Knights of the Hudson. Uh, our, our kind of our rally cry is, go Army, beat Navy. That's right, we got a couple of West Pointers over there. Um, now, back in my day, we actually used to beat Navy. Um, but for the past 10 years, we have not beat Navy, right? And so, Jake, so we say, go Army, beat Navy, but do we really believe that we're going to beat Navy? No, not really. It's just kind of a battle cry. It's just sort of what we say, but I don't know. Maybe this year we just beat Northwestern yesterday, which was a great victory for uh, the Army team, but, and maybe we'll beat Navy this year, but you see, there can be sort of a gap between what you are confessing and what you actually believe and know to be what's going to happen in your life. And Ruth 2 is a beautiful picture for us, for us. Ruth 2 is this story that doesn't really advance history of God's people. It's just sort of a little side. It's like a little bubble to give us a picture into the life of an ordinary person and an ordinary family in the midst of the time when God is doing extraordinary things but then to give us a sort of picture into the life of just an ordinary person to show us that this is how God usually works in the lives of ordinary people. It's to show how the great and glorious power of the creator of the universe, how most often his providence actually 
touches down in the lives mysteriously and often in a hidden way, but in a very real way in the lives of regular people like us. And in Ruth chapter 2, we see that mixture of God's providence behind the scenes in a beautiful way. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Lord, help us as we approach your scriptures. Lord, I pray that today uh, we would not come to your book, to your truth, to your word with a set of preconceived notions and a sort of self-orientation. But I pray today that you would humble us and that you would, you would show us yourself. That you would sort of connect the dots between what we profess and what we actually experience. And you would blow away the dust, so to speak, that often, uh, heart, that often shields our eyes from your fingerprints. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room that have not yet trusted in Jesus, that in your kind providence, you would give them the gift, the gifts of faith and repentance so that they would turn from trusting in themselves and pleasure in sin and they would find trust in you and pleasure in Christ. I pray for the Christians in this room who are weary. I pray that you would stir our affections for Jesus so that we might enjoy you more fully. And so that you, through us, might glorify yourself more completely. I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I start reading Ruth 2, let me just briefly summarize Ruth 1. Remember that there was this family, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and they left the land of Bethlehem, which was God's land, the promised land, because there was a famine in the land, which would obviously have been understood by these readers that were reading Ruth as a sort of consequence of their unfaithfulness to God. So instead of repenting and staying there and learning a lesson from God, they flee to this land of Moab, which was one of Israel's primary enemies. And in this place of Moab, they, they, they experience uh, difficulty and trial. The, the sons marry these Moabite wives who, uh, as we'll hit on again, represent this culture of Moab that was one of the primary antagonists of Israel in the Old Testament, and who specifically, who, who, uh, whose women were known for seducing Israeli uh, Hebrew men and drawing them away from faith in the true God. And so there's this, it's really this decade of despair where Elimelech, the husband, dies, and then his two sons die after marrying these women that they shouldn't have married. And now Naomi is stuck with these two daughters-in-law and, and she hears that maybe something, that the fortunes have turned back in Bethlehem. So chapter 1 is all about the despair that Naomi finds herself in, having lost her husband and her sons, being completely vulnerable in an ancient world where women without protection of men in the family found themselves very vulnerable. And remember, we're living in the times of judges where everybody's doing whatever's right in the sight of their own eyes. And so these women are incredibly vulnerable. And now they... They, they find themselves just this one mother-in-law and her two sisters-in-law, and Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem because she hears that fortunes have turned and there's food there. And she encourages her, her, her daughters-in-law to stay there in their native land of Moab, but, and one of them does, Orpah stays. But Ruth insists that she stays with Naomi, and she utters this beautiful line in the Scripture, No, you are my people now. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. And so... 
chapter 1 ends with Naomi and Ruth going back to Bethlehem. And Naomi's attitude, if you remember at the end of chapter 1, is just full of bitterness. And it's just sour. You know, she's back. She hears that there's hope on the horizon. But she sees her friends that she left a decade ago who are probably talking about her, behind her about her back saying, aha, see, she got what she deserved. She left when she should have stayed. And oh, by the way, she's coming back with these two uh, dirty Moabite, uh, this one dirty Moabite daughter-in-law who represents everything that is profane in our culture. And so they say, oh, there's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweetness or pleasure. She says, call me Mara, which means bitterness. The Lord has brought me, he, I left full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so the chapter one ends with Naomi just, just absolutely sour and bitter, but yet hope is on the horizon. And so that brings us to chapter two. So let's read. I'll read, stop and comment, and then we're going to end on three things that, that I think the Lord would teach us from this chapter. All right, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative, just kind of out of nowhere now, this just sort of pops up. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That's not necessarily connected to what the next sentence is going to say, but we just, the writer just thought that would be helpful if we just kind of set the stage and threw that out there. This is the first time that Boaz arrives on the scene in our story. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite, emphasis on Moabite, Remember, she's representing this profane culture that God wanted his people to stay away from. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, I I don't want to surmise too much into the text when not much is written there. We don't know anything about the emotional state of Naomi at this point. But remember, she's... We ended with her in chapter 1 with a lot of bitterness, and now Ruth is starting to, you know, just kind of do something at least. I mean, they're hungry. They need to eat, and she's going to go. Why didn't Naomi go with her? And Naomi doesn't seem to be particularly encouraging. You can just imagine sort of this, this Jewish mother-in-law who's just kind of sweeping the floor, still kind of talking under her breath and bitterness towards God. Yeah, go. Go. Yeah, do whatever, whatever. No, no real encouragement or hope. Again, I'm reading into the text. I'm just sort of surmising that maybe Naomi's attitude is still not quite what it should be. Verse 3. So she, meaning Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was, in case you missed it in the first sentence, oh, by the way, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, and now you can just see, if if Hollywood was making a movie here, chapter 1 would end, and the the edges of the scene and the lighting would be dim, you know, and, and, and the music would be sort of haunting and slow, right? And, and, and Naomi's expression would be dour, and, and it wouldn't be a happy ending of that episode. And then chapter 2 would start sort of the same, sort of on a somber mood, and she would be sweeping wherever they were staying, and Ruth is deciding to do something, and she's leaving, and now all of a sudden Boaz is coming, and all of a sudden the music would begin to pick up, and there's, you know, birds would start to chirp, and just, just look at the, what, how the, 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 reader just sort of, the, the writer just sort of changes the mood 
when Boaz is introduced to the scene here, verse 5, or, or verse, verse, uh, verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, you know, as, as birds are flying around him, you know, and, you know, just kind of, hey, happy, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who was in the charge of the reapers, oh, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, which is actually where, I don't know why they needed to say that again, but that's actually where most Moabites are from. They're from Moab. (laughs) Emphasis there. Verse 7, she said, She said, he's repeating the conversation that he had had with Ruth, obviously, previously. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So let's stop there, and let's notice a few things, okay? Let's notice what's going on here. Uh, First of all, there are numerous references to the ethnicity of Ruth, lest we have forgot who she is, and the people that she came from. So we have Ruth the Moabite. We have the young Moabite woman who is from the country of Moab. And it's almost a a literary device to set us up for a deeper display of God's glorious grace. He's, he's, He's saying, it's, you know, it's like the person from there, that place where nothing good can come from, that has, that has been this place of debauchery and sin, just hammering that home. And then notice in, in verse 3, where, where it says that she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and then we, our translation in English says, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, in the original language that th- this was written in, in Hebrew, it, it's sort of a wordplay. It says that, and, and as chance chanced, she came to the field belonging to Boaz. And so it's a sort of kind of, it's, it's like a, a, a literary device, kind of like hyperbole for the Hebrew language, for the Hebrew reader to realize that it is so obviously not chance. It's so obviously not luck. It's kind of like a rolling of the eyes, like, oh, well, as luck would have it, what do you know? She was in the field that happened to, how did that happen? And so already the writer is sort of prepping us almost sort of in a comic, sarcastic way to see the hidden hand of God behind all that is going on. We see Boaz's character. I want you to notice that as well. He's not only a worthy man, as it says in verse 1, but he seems to be a God-saturated man. He greets his servants with these blessings, these salutations, and they seem to very heartily greet him back. And we see, we see just a picture of Ruth's character. She's humble, she's hardworking, and she's hopeful. And so what's going on here also is that this isn't just, it didn't just happen to be that there was some left over, but there was a stipulation in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, 
for landowners where God would want to mediate his kindness and his grace through his people so that they might be a blessing to the poor. And so there's a reason why Ruth was even allowed to come and glean or gather some of the food from the edges of the field because God specifically years before had told Moses to tell his people to do this. So if we were to go to Le- Leviticus, don't worry about flipping there, but in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 10, this is what it says. This is Moses speaking to the people, one of God's commandments to the people. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so that's what Boaz is doing. That's what he's instructed his workers to do. He's being a good, wealthy landowner, a generous man who's allowing for there to be sort of almost kind of like God's built-in welfare system for the poor. And his workers are obeying him, and that's what's happening here, is that, Na- that Ruth, and I'm sure presumably others, are coming along and sort of picking up the scraps that have been intentionally left so that through God's people and their obedience, he might work his kindness to the poor. All right, let's keep going in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she, in verse 10, fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Remember the the numerous references to her ethnicity in the first few verses. And she's acutely aware of of the animosity and really the, the, uh, the obvious kindness that Boaz is showing her and even associating with her as a Moabitess. Verses 11 and 12 are really the heart of this chapter. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So obviously word had got out about Ruth's dignity and the, uh, really the honor of her character. And he says in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And so Boaz has noticed Ruth, and now he has given her this incredible kindness, and he's given her provision and he's also giving her physical protection. And he's telling her that the, his young men won't touch her. In fact, they will protect her. And if she's thirsty, she can go get a drink with his workers and young women. And then the scene progresses. I guess it's break time, meal time, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers which would have been unheard of. I mean, these are Jewish reapers. 
and yet she is a Moabitess, unclean, is sitting next to his workers. And he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate, listen to this, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So here's this hungry foreigner who's come back with her mother-in-law, probably starving, just so happened to be in Boaz's field. He gives her provision and protection. There's this sort of first meal together, and she leaves with a doggy bag, right? She has to call the waiter. She's got more than she can eat. And I imagine she was hungry. She was hungry. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So here we see Boaz going above and beyond what the law requires. He doesn't just tell them, don't do the edges of the field and leave that for her. He also gives her physical protection, and then he tells his guys, oh, yeah, yeah. And when she's not looking, accidentally drop some of your stuff so that she can come along and get some of it too. He is, he is going above and beyond what the stipulation of Leviticus requires. Verse 17 says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Just so you know what an ephah was, that was about 30, 40, maybe as much as 50 pounds of barley. So, I mean, Ruth's no, she's no dainty gal. I mean, she's, she can carry 30, maybe 50 pounds of barley with her back after she had eaten all that she needed to eat with some left over. So she's got this bag of barley, her, you know, her doggy bag from the first lunch with Boaz, She's a tough lady. Verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So notice here, notice just how things are going to begin to change in Naomi's heart. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Can you imagine how Naomi's mind just, the gears are starting to crank up. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And we're going to pick up this theme of kinsman redeemer, redeemer, very strongly in chapter 3, because that's what that chapter is primarily about. But let me just kind of give you a little tidbit. There was this, again, this stipulation in God's kindness to care for the widow and for women whose husbands had died to have the nearest male relative be a redeemer and protector of the property and the livelihood of these women so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to a wicked culture. And so we see that hmm, he's one of our relatives and is pointing us forward to some greater truth here than just earthly temporal food and protection. That's next week. Verse 21. 
And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men and they, until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close. Now listen to this. I love verse 23 because it, 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 sort, of, it sort of pushes against our desire uh, to sort of make things happen quickly, right? We're like, okay, I mean, if she just happened to be in Boaz's field, and clearly he's willing, and so let, let's get this party started. Come on, let's, let's, let's do this deal, right? Naomi, why don't you march over to Boaz's house? But no, 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 God's timing and God's providence often is slow. It takes time to develop, and we see that in verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So at least days, weeks, maybe even a month or two after that. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Oh, I'm so tempted to go into chapter 3 right now. I mean, that's just a tantalizing to-be-continued, isn't it? But we will wait to develop the story further. So what are three things that I think this, this beautiful chapter teaches us? The first is, very simply, that God's people can trust in His provision and act. God's people can trust in His provision and act. Ruth becomes a picture of this truth. She, she although she was from the land of Moab and a Moabitess, because of her, her trust in the God of Israel, we see her becoming one of God's people. And this becomes a beautiful picture, which we'll talk about in a second, that God's people are not a particular ethnicity or a particular region, but God's people are people of faith in Him. When God called Abraham years and years and years before this, it, it wasn't because Abraham was of some particular ethnicity that was more attractive to God. It was because he was a man of faith and he trusted in God. And so Ruth because of her trust and confession of faith in God in chapter 1, becomes one of his people, although that's not fully played out for us yet. But she realizes, even in, her, in the early stages of her trust in the God of the Bible, that she can trust in his provision. And this sort of undergirding of trust becomes a platform with which she doesn't just wait for God to drop something in her lap, but she is emboldened to take a risk and go. She becomes a sort of early picture of Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 that says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who's working in you to both will and to act according to His good pleasure. And so how are we to understand, though, this? Because we can, we can look at that truth and we can say, Okay, well, clearly, uh, I agree with that, Brad. God's people can trust in His provision and act. And so she acted, and God rewarded her. Okay, all right. I do something, then God is going to reward me. Now, unless we're careful, we can take that truth and run with it in an unhealthy direction and make it really into what I think is what much of the American church today that's caught up in the prosperity gospel very incorrectly sees our relationship with God. So how are we to understand verses 11 and 12? Let me read those again. Boaz, remember, comes to her. And he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, this is what Boaz says. The Lord repay you for what you have done 
and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So how, here's the question I want us to wrestle with here underneath this point of God's people can trust in his provision and act as, how is this different from earning something from God, which if you've been at least half awake for the past few years and you've been at Crosspoint, you realize that, that, that we realize that's not the way we trust in God. We don't, it's not some sort of karma relationship with God as if he's sort of uh, obligated to bless us. So, so how is this verse not teaching us this? How is this verse teaching that this is something different from just merely earning a reward from God? Well, if we look deeper at it, we'll see that Ruth's motivation actually wasn't reward-oriented at all. <laughs> remember chapter 1. Remember, remember what we saw with Ruth in chapter 1. If she was making a decision based on what would be more potentially rewarding or advantageous, Back in chapter 1, stay here in Moab with my parents and my, my home people uh, where I would have a better chance of being provided for or go with this bitter Jewish mother-in-law whose husband died and whose two sons die and she's kind of tough to be around, quite honestly, and to go back to the place that she left in the first place because there was a famine. I mean, if, if Ruth's heart and motivation was reward, she would have never gone with Naomi in the first place. So, so there's something deeper going on here in Ruth's heart and in her motivation. And that deeper thing is, is that the God of the universe is giving her the sovereign gift of faith and repentance so that she would turn away from conventional wisdom and trust in him and Go to God, not to reward or some temporal blessing, but to go to God. And so actually this verse actually, actually mitigates, it actually speaks against a sort of reward-based mentality with God because she finds reward in God, which is ultimately refuge in God's blessing and provision, not because she was going for that, because she was going simply to God. And so actually this verse teaches us that, that Ruth's hope was in God's work for her, not her work for him. Do you see that? Do you see, the, see how it feels and may, may come out sounding the same, but how there's, a, there's an ocean of difference between those two mentalities? Her hope was in God's work for her, not in his obligation to necessarily bless her work for him. And we find that God blesses her and he uses Boaz's kindness as his, listen to this now, this is important, as his particular display of his goodness to Ruth. And it gives us a sort of object lesson to point us to God's ultimate provision and protection in Christ. This is not in the Bible so that we will say, if we're obedient and then I do this, then God is now obligated to, in this lifetime, temporarily bless me with provision and protection. Friends, if we read into that, then we, then we lose the other biblical examples, like, for example, John the Baptist in the New Testament, right? He's Jesus' cousin, preaches for Jesus, is the forerunner for Jesus' ministry gets thrown in jail for his preaching against Herod and his, his crazy relationship with his, 
kind of stepdaughter-in-law, cousin. It's just really, I mean, it's just like a Jerry Springer episode. And John the Baptist preaches against it. He gets thrown in prison. And in prison, this is so good for all of us who have doubted our faith. In prison, John the Baptist, man, if anybody's got a juice card, John the Baptist has a juice card. He's Jesus' cousin, and he's mentioned by Jesus as, 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 as nobody's greater, born of a woman, than this guy right here. And John the Baptist is in prison, right? And he sends some of his disciples to say, hey, uh, oh, by the way, ask Jesus if he's really the one or not. So if you've ever doubted your faith and you want to turn inward and say, oh, I don't know. I mean, come on, man, be encouraged. Johnny B, Johnny B doubted. And so John the Baptist is in prison. And this is what Jesus sends word back to him. He says, yeah, tell John the Baptist, yes, I'm the one. And then he quotes for him a prophecy from Isaiah and he says that, 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 that the blind will see and that the lame will walk. But he doesn't quote the last one, line of that prophecy that says, and the captive will be set free. So basically what he tells John the Baptist is, yes, I'm the one, and you're not getting out of prison. And a few weeks later, you're getting beheaded. Jesus didn't tell him that, but that's what happened. All right, and so if we, now, if we now take obedience, earthly obedience, and mean that God in these 80 years is now obligated to sort of answer all of our prayers from this one situation in Ruth 2, we miss the ultimate and eternal providence of God. What about the people in Hebrews chapter 11 who were commended for their faith? These cats who slayed, you know, lions and conquered kingdoms and did all these great things because of their faith for God. And oh yeah, what about those people who were sawed in half? In the same chapter, people were commended for their faith. In one sense, it brought earthly triumph. In another sense, it didn't, but they're mixed together as the same example of faith in the same chapter. And so the whole point here, friends, is that this picture of Ruth's reward is to point us beyond earthly reward and to point us to the reward of provision and protection, which only comes from trusting in Jesus' work on the cross. And when we trust in that, we are emboldened to not cling to these 80 years, to not self-protect. Because as Paul writes to Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. I am persuaded, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, because Jesus has went outside the city and left the camp and died on the hill, I can go outside the camp and obey Jesus because my ultimate protection and provision is not physical safety just for these 80 years or food or blessing or promotion for these 80 years, but it is ultimately and finally and fully protection and provision in Christ. And from that basis, God's people can trust in his provision and act. Point number two, God uses his people to give refuge to the needy. God actually mitigates. He, he channels his kindness he channels his mercy through his people, and then those people become the means by which he actually gives refuge to the needy. We read in verse 12 that, that Boaz says to her, a full reward to be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that's kind of ironic because really she's being protected by Boaz. So he's saying to her that God is giving you refuge under his wings, but literally he's the one that is becoming the, the embodiment, the, the realization, the physical uh, uh, you know, presence of, of God's protection. And so God uses his people to give refuge to the needy. 
God's kindness and character is seen in Boaz's nobility towards Ruth. Boaz, this God-saturated, worthy man, becomes for us a picture of biblical manhood, a picture of chivalry and nobility. But friends, it's, it's important for us to see that the chivalry is rooted not just in mere morality. It's not just be a good guy. This chivalry, this nobility, this biblical manhood is rooted in the character of God. Boaz becomes a picture of the Lord's provision and protection for us even as he gives refuge to Ruth. I think it's also important to see that Boaz's attraction to Ruth was not initially physical or sexual. It was because of her character which flowed from her conversion as she clung to the God of Israel. And so Boaz is an older man. Ruth was, I mean, we don't really know him. Imagine she was probably an attractive woman. We see in chapter 3, if we fast forward a little bit, one of the things Boaz does is he commends her for not, you know, kind of giving herself to some of the younger men. The, the implied thing is there that she probably was the type of young woman that would get a lot of attention and maybe the reputation. A lot of these young Israelite men are thinking, oh, a Moabitess. Remember Numbers chapter 25 when all those Moabitess women seduced all of her? Maybe she's loose. Maybe she's easy. And one of the things Boaz does is commend her for that. But, but there's no sense here that Boaz is kind of checking her out. He calls her daughter. And the one thing that he says to her that gets his attention is, I've heard about your character, how you protected your mother-in-law, Naomi, and how you have committed to her. And so what seems to be attractive to Boaz about Ruth is her character, which flowed from her conversion to the God of Israel. This brings up a couple questions very briefly. Men, what, what, do we, what do we most see when we look at women? How do we view them? Is it merely external 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul encourages us that we should treat younger women like sisters in all purity. Now, friends, I mean, listen, I, I understand this attraction. I remember the first day I walked into the church here in Columbus, Evangel Temple. I was a lieutenant at Fort Benning, and um, I, was, I, I was looking to meet a girl. I'm just going to tell you like it is. In fact, I drove down from New York from college to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I was just kind of thinking, you know, maybe God's going to introduce me to some southern belle. And I was looking, I like all the billboards down I-95, you know, coming down the eastern seaboard. I was just, I mean, this was in my less theologically informed days. I was wondering maybe if through like, you know, alliterating something on some billboard, he might show me her name or whatever. I mean, it was just crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy, right? And in God's providence... I just so happened to be at this church when Jennifer happened to be home from school, living with her parents, and I just so happened to notice her in the choir, and her mother, my future mother-in-law, just so happened to invite me to lunch that day. I was wanting to accept the free lunch, but kind of give this nice uh, lady who seemed to be about my mother's age, I didn't use the word older, I wanted to accept the free lunch but kind of give her the Heisman stiff arm so that I could accidentally bump into this young lady that I had noticed singing that day. And um, my, my original point is that, yeah, I noticed, I noticed her, not because of her fine character, but I, I noticed her. So I'm not, I'm not trying to act like that's not a component of, of what God has put inside of us. But, but I'm just saying that what would our church 
look like if, if we were just full of men who had this sort of Christ-like mo- nobility about them where they, where they fought against a culture that is just like a, like a gutter of sin and debauchery when it comes to relationships between men and women and they just, they just fought against that and, and they looked at young women as sisters. And yes, in God's kindness and providence, he picked a few of those sisters out and caused them to meet in a sort of divine providence and let them enjoy all the blessings that should flow from the heart and physical and, and emotional connection between a man. Yes, all of that, but what would it look like if we just had a culture of young men who were like Boaz, who had this sort of biblical Christ-like nobility? And what would it look like if we had a culture of Ruth's who, who, who seemed to not sort of be putting themselves out there, who, who weren't informed by this culture of just sort of, just sort of carnality, and they didn't dress like the, the local or the latest pop star. They weren't informed of what beauty was by, by the, the, the skinny-looking little heroin addict on the cover of Cosmopolitan or Glamour magazine, but they realized that true beauty is internal, and it exudes, and it's something that God uses to providentially bring about their life mate here on this earth. What would a culture look like for a church to have that type of, of striving and mentality? I just pray that that would be something that God does here. God's protection and provision came in the form of Boaz's generosity. Don't miss this before I, I, I've gone too long on this point already, but um, this is something that I think God really wants us as a church to get a hold of, is that Boaz goes above and beyond and gives Ruth extra. Boaz's obedience over and above generosity are the means by which God gives refuge to Ruth. God took a wealthy man who had good character and really, in a sense, reenacted his covenant with Abraham with him. He blessed him so that he would be a blessing to others. God has blessed this church and the people in this room. But our blessing becomes a stench in the eyes of God if it dead ends on us. You see, not only did Ruth have faith in God in his provision to act, but Boaz also demonstrates a sort of faith in God because he had given, God had obviously blessed him, but he wasn't holding on to it. He wasn't clinging to it. He was giving it away, right? He was giving it away. I mean, there's more wealth just in this room than there are in some cities in poor countries in the world. Some of us have Some of us have cars that are bigger than where some people live. And the point is not for us to walk away here feeling convicted and we need to go sell our car, although that may be what God is calling you to do. He may be telling us to sell some of our silly little trinkets so that we might be able to give more away. Friends, that may be the very thing that God is calling us to do. But what I think God is wanting to do is for a people that he has blessed much is to not let that blessing sort of dead end on them as a sort of cesspool sewer cul-de-sac. Why did God allow you to be born in Columbus, Georgia, to be the son or daughter of those parents, to be the inheritor of that wealth, so that you could join some club or waste your money on recreation, 
No, friends, he didn't do it for that reason. Why did he give you the spiritual knowledge that he gave? So that you could just study the Bible with Christians and just sort of be sort of a self-absorbed little person who just wants to know more about God? No. Why did he give any gift that he gives? He gives it so that through his people he might bless others. And you see here that Boaz becomes, he becomes the actual way that God gives refuge to the needy. And we as a church are called to do the same, to be like Boaz, so that through us God can, can bring refuge to the outcast and the needy. And that leads me to my f- final point. And it's such a theme of Ruth. And it's that God is gracious and gives refuge to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Now, if you've been, if you've got a l- little bit of Old Testament knowledge in you, you may have been picking up on kind of a building tension here. I think it's why that so often in the first couple of chapters, the writer mentions Ruth the Moabitess, or the young woman from Moab, right? There's sort of this building tension that the writer does not want us to miss. Boaz's acceptance of Ruth, this Moabitess, presents us with, with what seems to be on the surface a dilemma. Because if you remember what we talked about last week, that the Moabites was this enemy of Israel, so if we were to go back to Numbers, chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25, we would realize that they, they actually hired a sorcerer to divine sorceries against God's people. And then in Numbers, chapter 25, these Moabitess women seduce these Jewish young men, and God's anger is aroused. And as a result of that, he sends a plague and kills 24,000 of them, right? So for all of us that kind of have this sort of, you know, god fairy like vision of God, um, it would do us well to read some of the stories like that in the Old Testament. We'll, we'll shore that up here in just a second. But God in his anger, his anger is aroused and he, he wipes out 24,000 people. And so uh, what are we to make of the fact that Boaz is, is, is accepting Ruth? I mean, God commanded Israel in the Old Testament to extinguish their enemies as they entered the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, he tells Moses, and then ultimately Moses dies, and Joshua uh, does this later on in Joshua, but he tells him like, to completely destroy them. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, this is what it says. Now in this list that I'll read here in a second, it doesn't include the Moabites. It includes several other people that were living in the promised land at that time. But I want you to get this picture of this seeming dilemma here about about Israel's relationship with other ethnicities in that time. So in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, God tells them, his people, to completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, listen, this is so important. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God, okay? So, all right, now, granted, the Moabites are not mentioned in that list, but here's the point. Just get the picture of God's, the seriousness with which God takes the purity of his people. He says, don't even intermingle with these people because you are so weak, Israel, that you, you, 
you are not ready to make them like you. If you get around them, they will make you like them. Right? And so well, what about the Moabites? Well, in Deuteronomy, just a couple chapters later, although God doesn't add them in that list of people that he said completely destroy, he does forbid Israel from allowing the Moabites to even enter their assembly because of how they mistreated God's people back in Numbers. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, he says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. All right, so that's recounting what happened in Numbers. So God's saying, don't mess with these nasty Moabites because they mistreated you. Now stay away from them. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. And so if we're savvy here and we're paying attention to the Old Testament and now we're in the New Testament era, we, we do have this sort of dilemma we have to solve. Why does God at points along redemptive history, encourage his people to, in one case, wipe out all of these other ethnicities, or in the cases of the Moabites, to just have nothing to do with them. Why is that? Is, is, is this God-endorsed racism in the Old Testament? Was that first or second century cat named Marcion correct? He was this, he was this early church leader who wanted the Old Testament just just dropped. He wanted it out. He wanted it disregarded by Christians because he felt like it, 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 it pictured a God of wrath that didn't jive with the God of grace of the New Testament. Is that, we're to make, is that what we are to make of this? No. Friends, what's going on here is before God, listen to this, before God could use Israel to be his light to the Gentiles, he first had to make them holy, right? And so if he lets Israel just be sort of a a, 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 just a junk drawer of, of sin, and then it's his people that he now presents to the world as a representation of his grace. Do you realize how these Amorites and Hittites and Canaanites and all these other people and the Moabites would never get a picture of who God truly was? And so, friends, it's never been that God loves the Jew more than anybody else. It's never been that he loves the upper middle class white person in the deep south more than anybody else. It's that God, when he sets his love on a person, needs to purify and make that person's heart devoted to him before he can fully use them, right? And so God, along redemptive history, is acting very severely in purifying his people and at times commanding them to kill all of the other influences that might make them unholy. But all, don't miss this, but all along the way, any individual, any Canaanite, any Parasite, any other Gentile person, if they would just turn, any individual always had the opportunity to turn from their gods and trust in the true God of Israel. We find a picture of that in Joshua chapter 2 where Rahab, this Gentile uh, foreigner, she offers protection to God's spies who are scouting out the land and Rahab is commended for her faith and makes it into Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament and she becomes one of God's people. So it's not that God hates other than Jews or just his people. It's that God is wanting to purify his people so that he can use them to be a true light to the world. And in Boaz, friends, we have a picture of that, that God 
gets a man and he gets a hold of his heart. And we see that because he's a righteous, worthy man who's not holding on to his stuff, who's not dead-ending on a cesspool of God's blessing. But through Boaz, Boaz becomes the channel through which God works his grace to Ruth. And God's heart has always been for the Gentile. God's heart has always been for the downcast. God's heart has always been for everyone who will turn from their sin, turn from their false gods, and trust in the true God of all things. And Boaz becomes this beautiful metaphor of God's people. He becomes this picture that we should be like so that through us God would call all manner and all kinds of people, black people, white people, yellow people, big people, short people, tall people, people that speak southern, people that speak Californian, people that live on this side of the world, Arabs, uh, Palestinians, Jewish people. God's plan has always been to gather for himself a people that are not ethnic primarily, but who are spiritual so that through him he might mitigate his grace to a world that so desperately needs him. And Boaz becomes a picture of the inclusion of all peoples. And also in a sort of stunning display of his kindness, Ruth then becomes this Gentile, becomes the means by which God even brings his bitter Jew back to himself. At the end of chapter one, we see Naomi faithless and angry. And at the end of chapter two, we see her, this Jew, who should have been like Boaz, starting to have her fortunes change and her attitude softened. And so in just chapter 2, we just see a little picture of God's heart for the nations, a little picture of God's heart for all peoples, channeled through the holiness and righteousness and heart and obedience of one man, who becomes a model for all people, all Christians, all churches. So my question is, and I end with this, friends, what does it mean to take refuge in God? What does it mean for us here today? For Ruth, it meant to turn away from false gods and other fields and to trust in the true God. To turn away from her Moabitess false gods, to only glean in the field that God had given her. We are tempted by so many other fields. What other fields whisper your name to draw you away with a promise of pleasure, but ultimately it will end in deep pain? Ruth is a picture of repentance for us to turn away from our false idols and other fields, and trust in the true God. What did it mean for Boaz to take refuge in God? It meant to turn away from self-absorption, to turn away from letting God's bountiful blessing in his life to dead end on him, and for him to take refuge in the greater pleasure of being used by God, that God provides so that he might generously bless others with what God has already given him. Boaz caught that and understood that, that it is so much better to give than to receive. What did it mean for Naomi to trust in God? 
to take refuge in God. For her, it meant that she could bring her bitterness and her anger and her pain to God, trusting that He providentially works all things, even our tragedies and despair, into blessings. As we read a couple week last week in that beautiful poem by, by William Cooper, that ye fierce, fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Naomi becomes a picture of us bringing our disappointments and bitterness to God, realizing that he providentially is using even our pain and our sin and our anguish and our anger to set us up for a spectacular display of his grace. So what does it mean for us to take refuge in God? Well, ultimately, this chapter, and I think this book of Ruth and the whole Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible, is not how we can get a better life from God here in these 80 years if we will merely trust him. Although I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us here and now. But Ruth 2 and the whole book of Ruth and the whole Bible is about something much bigger than temporal transactions with the creator of all the universe. It's about how God ultimately and finally gives us refuge and protection and provision from his wrath if we will trust in Christ's work on the cross. Ruth is about pointing forward to that final and ultimate provision where Jesus provides for our separation from him. He provides for us by sending his son Jesus to bear the weight of our sin and our rebellion on the cross, becoming the only, the only satisfactory substitute for our sin so that we will turn from self-trust, so that we will turn from taking pleasure in our sin, and so that we will look to him as our only hope, our only hope of provision and refuge. And that's what Ruth 2 is about. So if you have not done that yet, friends, the kindness of God brought you here today. You may be just in a pattern of growing up in the Bible, but you just are trying out a new church, or you just... Rest- answered an invitation from somebody to come here. Maybe you've been here for a while and just in God's kindness, he's showing you that you, you've never really trusted in him. Friends, right now the Holy Spirit is bringing you the gift of repentance and faith so that you will turn away from yourself and turn to God's work in Christ on the cross right now. You don't need to fill out a card or repeat a prayer. Look to Jesus, friends. He has dropped Wheat, barley, he's dropped an ephah, he's dropped a 30-pound bag of grace in your lap right now. Eat and be satisfied, friends, in Christ, not in yourself. Do it right now. Don't wait. Look to Christ. Trust in him. He's more satisfying than the other field. He's more satisfying than it. I I know that because the Bible says it, and I know it because I've experienced it in my life. I have eaten, I have eaten the poison food of other fields, friends, and it never, never satisfies. Christ provides the only place where you can find God's refuge. Turn to him right now. It's not just something you have to do and grit your teeth, and then it's more satisfying than anything else in this life, friends. I speak from experience. 
And if you're a Christian in this room and the Holy Spirit is hitting you hard saying, I have blessed you not so that you will wallow in a cul-de-sac, but I've blessed you so that through you, you can be like a kind of Boaz, Brad, so that you don't just sit on the gift that I've given you. You don't just sit on the stuff that I've given you, but your hands are open, man, so that through you, man, you're just, you're just dropping stuff all over the place so that the outcast and the needy can come and eat and see Jesus and be satisfied. And if that's you right now, like I think it is me, then let the Holy Spirit just squat on you right now and press out of you, squeeze out of you like he needs to do me all of that self-absorption that still exists so that we can be like Boaz and be a sort of channel of God's blessing to the needy. Now let's pray and respond to God. Father, um, I pray right now that you would help us to hear these words and to respond to them and to be faithful to what you are calling us to do. I pray that people in this room that have not trusted in Jesus would right now trust in him, look to him, that they would turn from idols and they would turn and trust in the only one that can bring refuge. I pray for Christians like myself that we would turn from self-absorption and that you would make us modern-day Boazes that would be the type of men and women that just are conduits for your grace to all kinds of people. And Lord, I pray that you'd hammer this home in our hearts for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.